Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. I have found that there's more than one way to address drinking. If you've ever asked yourself if drinking is taking more than it's giving, or if you've found that you're drinking more than usual, you may have reached your own alcohol tipping point. The Alcohol Tipping Point is a podcast for you to find tips, tools, and thoughts to change your drinking. Whether you're ready to quit forever or a week, this is the place for you. You are not stuck and you can change. Let's get started. Thank you for listening today. I think of this episode as kind of like part two of helping a loved one. We had parenting coach Heather Ross on a prior episode, and she was talking about her experience helping her daughter with substance use and helping parents uh, whose children struggle with addiction or drinking. We also talked about helping your loved one in general when they are struggling with drinking. And this episode is just a deeper dive into the concepts uh, and tools behind helping a loved one change. And so I think you're going to find it really helpful if you are frustrated with your loved one who drinks too much, if you're feeling powerless and unsure of how to help someone who has a drinking problem or other addiction. Maybe you're sober now, you're not drinking now, and you're struggling with your partner who still drinks. So I think this will be really helpful for you to just learn how you can help someone change with a science and compassionate based approach. And you don't have to be enabling or using tough love or waiting for them to hit rock bottom. So on the show today, I am just delighted to have Dr. Jeffrey Foote. He is a co-founder of the Center for Motivation and Change Outpatient Programs on the East Coast. He is also one of the authors of a book I highly recommend. It is called Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. He also has a new workbook out that is just so wonderful. It's so usable, easy, and it's called the Beyond Addiction Workbook. I'll make sure to link to both of those books in my show notes, but it is just like an honor to have this expert on the show, someone who uses science and kindness to help people change. He does a great job of speaking to not just the person who is struggling to help their loved one, but also if you are struggling with your drinking, I think you're going to find it really helpful too. This may be an episode that you want to share with your partner or spouse or loved one just so that they can get a different perspective in how how to relate to you when you're trying to change your drinking and it's really tough. And then if you're on the other side of things and and you're the one that really wants to help your loved one change and you're just so frustrated, then this will also be a really helpful episode for you. So thank you for listening. Let's get started. Well, welcome Dr. Foote to the show. I am just really honored to have you here. I finished your workbook, The Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, and I just thought it was so helpful. So just you you say it yourself, science plus kindness equals change. So really want to thank you for all the work you're doing around helping people who have loved ones who struggle with addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's coming from having the first 30 years of my career being not working with families, just working with people who are struggling themselves and taking a lot of the ideas of 
what's helpful to people and how to help them think about the struggle they're in and, and, and explain that to their families <laughs> in essence, so that there's a, a greater understanding on both sides of that street, you know, so. Well, I appreciate that. And as I was reading it, you know, because I've been the one that has struggled with drinking. And I think a lot of the people who are listening are people who are struggling to change themselves. And I was reading your workbook and I'm like, this is just so helpful for everyone. Mm. I mean, it, mm. and it not even just if you're struggling to help your loved one, but if you, if drinking is your thing, or even, you know, there's so many good communication tools in it that as a parent, I was like, oh, I'm, I need to do this with my kids. Yeah. This is going to yeah. help me communicate better. Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, there's the, we, we could talk about the whole approach, the invitation to the change and the different elements of it, whatever one of the ones of those might be helpful or interesting to talk about. But I literally just stepped out of a training we're doing with family members 10 minutes ago. And the topic that we were on at that moment was as a family member, you experience all kinds of emotions, including shame. And I, and then you isolate and, and these kind of things that are sort of natural human responses to a struggle, especially a, a struggle that in this culture is highly stigmatized. So either the person who's struggling themselves or the person who's trying to help them Everybody feels stigmatized. Everybody feels like I'm not supposed to talk about this. This is not okay. I'm a, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person for struggling and I'm a bad person for loving somebody who's struggling. So you said everybody gets the bad news there. And to the point we were making 10 minutes ago in this training was you as a family member may feel a lot of, of shame about that I'm involved in a struggle like this and, and was this my fault, but. If you also look across the street at the person that you're trying to help or your family member, guarantee you that person is, is doubled down on the amount of shame that they're experiencing. And they may not express that. And they're not walking around with that on their sleeve saying, I feel ashamed, but so much of this kind of struggle results in people feeling bad and feeling other and, you know, a failure and I can't believe I'm still doing this. And again, as a, they may not express that to the family member, but the sense of like, I'm hurting everybody. I'm messing everything up. I can never get this right. is such an intense part of this whole thing for, for people when they're in the middle of that struggle. So I think these, this invitation to change idea is an invitation to everybody. I mean, that's what it's about is how can we help you, this person who's in this struggle, start to think about this in other ways and understand your own behavior in ways that are less stigmatizing, that are more uplifting for you and, are, and that are real. You know, the kindness is not like, just be kind. The kindness is like, this is a hard thing. You deserve the kindness, you know, you're, you're so I think yeah, it really applies to both. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so what do you think we've gotten wrong about trying to help people? Well, that is a long list. I'm sorry to say as a psychologist and as a human, I don't think we do that so well, but it's interesting when you just, when you just ask that question like that, that's what do we do wrong in helping people change? One thing I would start with is helping people change anything. So this is not specific to substance struggles. It's really this whole invitational idea about helping someone change really is about changing any kind of behavior. And it's not that all behaviors are the same and, and have equal difficulty in terms of changing and so forth, but it is true that a lot of the 
of the barriers to change, a lot of the things that people struggle with about any kind of change are similar. For instance, real, real basic ones like the behavior I'm engaged in, whatever it is, I work too hard. I can't get motivated to work. I drink too much. You know, I'm, I'm not kind to my family and I don't know why, you know, and I'd like to change any of those things. To start with the basic idea that that behavior makes sense in some way. So if we start often in the encouraging of change process, what happens, especially if it's a behavior that I, as the person asking you to change, if I don't like your behavior or it scares me, or I don't understand it, or, or it's making me mad, I am often likely to come at it from the perspective of you need to change that. And that behavior, it doesn't make any sense. And that behavior is bad. So it's pretty clear, you know, you need to change it. It's sort of like if somebody is smoking and you approach them and say, well, I don't know if you've ever read the label, by the way, but this, the turns out this smoking cigarettes is dangerous and you just really need to have that information so you can stop now. Right? Like, yeah, no. And that's not how this works. Like, yeah, I, I knew the information you telling it to me either nicely or in it with a raised voice is not actually helpful to me. But what actually could be quite a bit more helpful for me is for me to pause you too, but for me to pause and say, well, what, what's what about this behavior is helpful for me? What about this behavior is important for me in, 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 in psychology language? What about this behavior is reinforcing for me? You know, we sometimes say this expression, if, if, if using substances was like putting my hand on a hot stove, I wouldn't have done it more than once. You know, I would have stopped us human animals don't continue stuff. That's only bad for us. That only has a big negative reaction. So we do stuff because it gives us something. It may have destructive downsides, bad things may be happening. The wheels are coming off the car and I'm fighting with my spouse and you know, all those things may be happening, but I'm still getting something from this. And what I'm getting is immediate and it's reliable and it's mine and I can do it on my own and hell with you all. And you know, that's, those are all like positive features for human beings about behaviors. And it makes me relax. If it now, it used to make me relax all night. Now it makes me relax for half an hour, but I still get something out of it. It used to help me sleep through the night. Now it helps me sleep for four hours because I have withdrawal from alcohol when I wake up in the middle of the night, but at least it gets me to sleep. So this behavior makes sense. And boy, is it helpful if my spouse could understand that not as an excuse, so to speak, but as a, actually, this is actually what happens here. So if I can let myself have that room to understand, right. I do this cause it helps me sleep. I have chronic pain from my, you know, back problems. I have PTSD from being in the service. I have whatever the things are, this helps me. And can I give myself a room to recognize that, allow that and, and give myself a break here a little, like, you know, this, there's the kindness part, right? Which is like, I'm not an evil person. I don't, I'm not a liar. I may not tell people what's happening. I may lie about stuff because not a real popular thing to say, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't show up for work this morning. Cause I was just using a bunch of cocaine all night. Like that's not a good thing to be honest about. So it's not rewarded to be open in these ways, but the point is. Can I, can I have the room to go? This is what makes sense about this behavior. Are there other ways I could get this that don't necessarily include drinking or using substances of some sort, you know, and that's just sort of a foundational idea in behavior change. 
Can I understand what the behavior is about? That will help me start to change it. It certainly helps other people have a little bit gentler, more empathic approach to me, which helps me as well. If they actually kind of walk in my shoes and understand what's going on here. And again, that can get confused with like, I'm not going to, you know, cut them any slack. I don't want to, that's just making up excuses. Well, it's not actually, there's a difference between making up excuses and, and having reasons. They're not the same thing. And people do things for reasons, not for no reasons. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I appreciate you saying, so having just an understanding of like, okay, why, why am I still drinking? Because I, I'm struggling with it. I know I'm better off without it. And I like to remind people like your brain is wired for this. Like it's wired to move you towards pleasure and away from pain in the quickest way possible. And alcohol does that. And I think that's so helpful for people to understand because they're always thinking like I'm broken. And I think like you're not broken. No, you're human and you're reacting to the way our brains are wired, as you just said. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Do you think a lot of addiction then is like a learning problem? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what I was kind of gleaming. I'm like, oh, this is just, you know, because this book is a lot about like learning and unlearning behaviors and habits that we've gotten into. And so then it's like, how do we unwind the habit and not just the habit of the person who's drinking, but the, the, how the other person responds to the person who's drinking. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question always, and it's, it's it's actually in our world of highly politicized, everything has got to be a fight about everything coming, being in this field for many, many years, you know, there's an idea that addiction struggles, substance struggles, disease. And I've been around long enough to remember when that was a good new idea. And that's not a model that I use or usually what we, how we talk about this is if that's a helpful model to you, go for it. It's not particularly scientifically supported. You don't really define a disease when it manifests in, in a hundred different ways in a hundred different people. That's not usually what we think of as a disease process usually a set of common variables associated with a disease. This is what liver cancer is, you know, and these are the signs and symptoms. This is what addiction is. How I got into this was, you know, at age 60, my wife passed away and I felt a huge amount of grief and mourning and I didn't know what to do with myself and alcohol was really useful to me. And I'm 15 and my friends all smoke pot and I love smoking pot with them because it's the only way I can feel relaxed in a social setting. And I use a bunch of heroin because I have chronic pain and I started with Vicodin and then heroin is better and faster. And boy, other than that, I'm not sure how I fit into this disease and how do we all fit together in the same category. So, so it's more complicated than just learning, I think, but because I mean, we, we think of it as the, the, the larger idea here being biopsychosocial, the biopsychosocial model, meaning there's biology involved for sure. The difference between you and me might be that my father had severe alcohol problems and my genes are such that alcohol has a different impact on my brain than it does on your brain. So when I drink, I don't feel it so much. So I need to drink more. That's a difference. That's a genetic difference that might predispose me to, to use alcohol more. I also had a set of experiences growing up that are different than yours. So 
I had a terrible childhood with lots of trauma and I don't want to think about that stuff. And alcohol really helps me with that. And you don't need that particular relief, you know, but we can go on and on with that list that I have depression, really bad depression. So that's the psychological part. I hang around with people who all drink really, really heavily. So that's the social part. And those are all different for different people, but those are all elements in how did I get here? You know, and it's going to be different for different people. So that's, that's why sort of calling it a disease or even calling it addiction is sort of like, eh, well, it's really different for different people, you know? Totally. And, and that makes me think about labels and can you speak to labels and how they can be harmful? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the simple version. Labels can be harmful <laughs> and, and really in that way, which is that they categorize people as if everybody was the same. So that, that, that doesn't offer me a lot of hope because I don't feel seen or heard in that description then. Oh, this is what addicts do. You hear that all the time. Well, that, that's not what I do. That's not how I got here. That, so am I not part of this group where I am? Or am I supposed to accept that this is how I act because you just included me in this group called addicts? And the more that happens, the more I'm not actually going to participate. I'm not being spoken to. This is not actually about me. It's about some other group you're talking about. But the other way labels show up is that it, because substance issues are such a stigmatized thing in this culture, labels for people who are struggling and then extrapolating that to labels for their family members, they're all labels that don't have a lot of meaning and that they, they might've started with some meaning around them. I'm thinking of terms like codependent or enabling that are, those are terms often used for family members. And what has happened though, is that they, that, that might've meant something actually on like on a technical level, like, like codependent might mean that I feel everything that you feel and think that if I change anything, it has to be okay with you. I mean, there might be an, a process of us blending together. That's not so helpful for either of us, but the term codependent is more become like a curse word. I mean, families feel the impact of that. You go to a treatment provider and like, Okay, by definition, because your husband drinks, you're codependent. Oh, really? I, I, okay, why is that? Because you're, you know, you love an addict and you're enabling them by staying with them. All this stuff that's just sort of like this form fit thing that doesn't actually fit most people. No, I love my husband. I'm trying to help him. So what, what, why wouldn't I do that? Of course I am, you know? I may need some new ways to help him, but I'm not going to leave. And I, this is hard and help show me how to stay connected and help, which, which is what the invitation to change is about, which is what things like motivational interviewing and craft are about. Those are all approaches that are more about, can I stay connected? Can I stay true to my values? Do I have to do this thing called tough love for lack of a better term where I need to and again, all the words in the culture, all the language, all the labels where I need to quote, let them hit bottom, where I need to detach. Like those are actually not particularly helpful as it turned out. Well, yeah. They're, they're part uh, of the culture, you know? Definitely part of the culture. And I'm really passionate being, you know, from the healthcare world, trying to change the stigma and the labels and all of that. Well, let's get into helping people then. So invitation to change. Tell me about that and how sure. that works. Sure. 
So, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, there's, there's, what are some methods, what are some strategies for me as somebody who's struggling with substances that are helpful to me? And then there's also strategies around, can the people in my life learn some stuff that's helpful as well? So, so there's something called craft that was developed by Bob Myers and Jane Smith about 25, 30 years ago. That's to help family members. And it's usually around when I, as the person struggling, don't want to hear about it. Like, leave me alone. I'm okay. And like, as a family member, what are you supposed to do with that? So it's just a, 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 way, a bunch of ways to help stay engaged and not be in this sort of like contentious fighting mode all the time. And, and I'm like, you know, I'm throwing you out and all these kind of things that are, again, are not actually particularly helpful. We, we took that approach, which is really a bunch of great ideas and that are evidence-based ideas that have been tried in, in research studies and found to be very helpful as ways to encourage change. And we just elaborated that. So over the last 10 years in working with families around the country, and this is like really literally traveling, traveling around the country, talking to families, training them in these things, coming back and going, this doesn't work for them. They don't get this part. This doesn't speak to their experience. How do we keep modifying this, I, this set of ideas that grew into this, this invitation to change, which is what we talk about in that, in the beyond addiction workbook. So that has a bunch of ideas from craft, like how do you use positive reinforcement? How do you notice positive changes instead of just staying focused on the negative stuff that's happening all the time, which is a very easy place to go. And the person struggling is expecting all that negative pushback constantly. I'm messing up. I know she's going to be mad at me. You know, it's not going to go well when I get home tonight. All that stuff is like the, the, the fabric of what's going on. So can we start to work in a way that allows the family members to not go there all the time and to notice other things that are starting to change and finding ways to encourage that change. So that's, that's where we began. Then we added in a bunch of stuff from something called motivational interviewing, which is just how do you talk with people in a way that's actually changing of, of non-defensiveness, but it, that's not judgmental, that makes room for each, each person is collaborative and is respectful. So this, this approach, the invitation chain includes lots of ideas from motivational interviewing about how do we talk, you know, how do we speak to each other? And it also includes a lot of information, a lot of ways of going about this that have to do with myself in this change process also. And again, that really applies to both, both the person who's struggling with the substance and the person who's trying to be helpful around that, the family member. And that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy or something called ACT. Uh, and that has more to do with pain, actually, to tell you the truth. And again, either, either for the person who's struggling with the substances or the person who's trying to help, which is if I'm engaged in some process of trying to change and figure out how to do that, not going to be comfortable. And how do I sort out like what matters to me, sort of establish some North stars that I want to walk towards knowing I'm going to stumble along the way, noted, knowing I'm going to get lost along the way, knowing how uncomfortable all that's going to be. So I'm actually going to start to make changes in my life. Not going to be comfortable. It may be actually painful at times. I'm, I'm not drinking anymore. And I, and I look at my wife and I realize she doesn't trust me. Well, what does that make me want to do? That makes me want to drink because that takes it away in the short term. So if I'm going to change, I'm probably going to have to learn something about changing my relationship to pain and discomfort. I'm going to have to start to tolerate that and accept this is hard. 
It's going to take us a couple of months before she trusts me. She, every once in a while, when I come home, she's still going to smell my breath. And I, she pretending she's not, and she is, and it pisses me off and makes me feel untrusted. And can I breathe through that and go, okay, this, this makes sense. I get it. it. It's painful to me. This is where we are still, but my values are to move forward in a way that's constructive for me because it's important to me to, to change my drinking. And it's important to me in our marriage for me to change my drinking. And that's what I want to try to stay with, even though it's uncomfortable. So that, that's a very deep, heavy thing to try to start to learn about. How do I, how do I stay there? Even though it's, even though it's really uncomfortable, you know, and change is uncomfortable. That's not usually part of change models, cognitive behavioral treatments and so forth, or more about literal behavior changes and, and you know, pointing out that this is a more positive path and so forth and so on. It still sucks to make changes, you know, and it's still hard. And can we slow down long enough to acknowledge that, but not have that be a red light where we have to turn around and go the other way based on how uncomfortable it is. So those are some of the elements in the approach. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I like how the center, because there, there are nine components. Is that right? Nine for eight. Yep. Eight and eight then one and in the invitation to change and then in the middle what i love is practice practice yeah. practice practice and that's kind of my thing i say like i help people practice not drinking because you're learning yeah. new tools to Great. not drink so yeah. so good you give an example and i think this will be really helpful for people who are focused on the negative parts of things and mm -hmm. focused on their loved one the negative parts and the example, like metaphor, is the garden analogy. Can, can you go into that and explain the purpose of that? Sure. And there's a, a number of people involved in our in our foundation and our group in developing this over time. So one of them is a psychologist named Ken Carpenter, who who first developed this idea of this garden metaphor. Another person involved is Carrie Wilkins, who gives Ken a hard time about the garden metaphor every time he describes it because she's from Kansas and grew up on a farm. And she says, you don't understand gardening at all. But anyway, we like the garden metaphor, regardless of the Kansas farmer objection, which is just the idea that uh, if you're trying to help in this change process with someone, there are going to be behaviors that are happening that are positive changes. There are going to be behaviors that are the older behaviors still. Again, if we start from that idea that, that the older behaviors make sense, again, we may not like them. They may have a destructive downside, but they, they still make sense. So I still get better sleep initially when I drink. That behavior may pop up. And I'm trying to learn a new behavior, which is when I, I do a meditation tape before I go to sleep and I don't look at my phone for two hours. Okay. And that helps me. It's not as good as drinking, but that helps me. So that's a positive behavior. So. In the garden bed for, we have plants that we want to have grow. And these are the flowers we're trying to have sprout up. And we have weeds that they are just part of the garden also. And what do we do with that? And as Ken describes that, like you can just cut off all the water for everything and kill everything in the garden. And those weeds are going to die for sure. And what you get for that is no flowers also. So as a strategy for encouraging new behavior, which is really what change is about, not just about stopping the old, what I would think, you know, I'm looking at you and I think that's bad behavior. I want that to stop, right? That's a much harder thing to do just on its own. 
it really is a much more likely thing to encourage change to adopt new behaviors and rewarding behaviors. So the degree to which I can have those new behaviors start to happen and have get positive feedback from the world, I'm going to want to continue those. And my wife says, I know this meditation thing is hard and it's weird for you. I'll do it with you if you want, if that's useful, because I think it's really cool that you're doing it. Okay. That's positive reinforcement. That makes me feel like, okay, somebody's noticing I'm trying to do something here. That's nice. It's not a big deal. It's a small little thing. It didn't cost a hundred dollars. It's just, somebody said, that's cool. What are you doing? That's nice. And that's useful. So that's watering the plants. That's watering the flowers. And when I don't do the meditation and I drank then last night instead, if she comes in and hammers me in the morning and says, yeah, this is all a bunch of crap. I knew this meditation thing was just a bunch of mate, mate. You're not really interested in this, are you? You just want to drink, right? That, that is hammering me backwards and is once again, sort of like trying to tear all the weeds out instead of just, I, I drank, we're not going to pay a lot of attention to it. We understand why that happened and we're just going to leave it alone and we're going to encourage the the flowers again, we're going to encourage the meditation and, and we're going to, I'm going to say, is there anything else I can do to be helpful about getting back on that track, you know, and that mixture of not getting entangled with the negative stuff and positively reinforcing the positive stuff is what the garden metaphor is about how to grow a garden that you want without having to be filled with weeds and without killing everything. And so it works in lots of ways and, and positive reinforcement is, is a, is what we know to be the most powerful tool for encouraging change. People really respond to something happening that feels good to them <laughs> and feedback they get about that. So as much as we can find ways to encourage the behavior or have the behavior, the new behaviors be stuff that is rewarding to the person. Yeah. I mean, so I go to AA meetings and I go there because I get to sit with a bunch of people and hear feedback and I feel at home and I don't feel judged. And that's like the only place in my whole life that I don't feel judged about this. Okay. That's cool. I, I could say I have objections to AAA or th this and that doesn't work about it, but who the hell cares? It works for you. It's positively reinforcing for you. It's really touching a nerve is really helpful for you. You feel at home and you feel cared about and you don't feel judged. Someone else could go to an AA meeting and feel demanded upon and like a failure and they have to go underground. So that's not a positively reinforcing place for that person. So don't go, you know, find some other way to reinforce positive behaviors for yourself. And again, that all is really different for different people, you know? Yeah. I appreciate that. So you, you in the book talk about three ways to change behavior. One is the positive reinforcement. And then the other ones are natural consequences and limit setting. Can you give some examples of those? Yeah. So that, and that, that's more about what, what family members or outside people can, can be doing, how they can responding in a way that's respond in a way that's helpful. But if I just speak to the experience of the person who's trying to change, I'm trying to change my drinking, or I'm trying to not use prescription drugs, overusing them anymore. The, the idea of natural consequences is it's a really interesting one in terms of the natural change process, because what's true about change and what's true about substance use issues is that most people come in and out of it on their own and never get treatment, never talk to, to a professional about it. They just change. And 
you know, if you look at different groups of people, like the, one of the more striking examples of that is college students and binge drinking. So if you look at the statistics on binge drinking, which is heavy drinking and very consequential, like really bad things are happening, you know, 1500, 2000 people, young people a year die related to acute issues of alcohol use, falling downstairs, crashing cars, alcohol poisoning, these kind of things. It's just staggering numbers. So if we said, so those people are alcoholics, right? Well, no, they're not actually. They're using alcohol at this, at this moment in their life and in this context, because they're being encouraged to, and because there aren't particularly consequences for that. They're young, they're not having health problems. Everybody else is doing it. They're getting by in school about as well as they could, but they're doing okay. So there, there aren't natural consequences. Three quarters of those people who you could, if you just looked at their use pattern while they're a sophomore or junior in college, you would say you qualify as having alcohol use disorder. Totally hands down, you qualify. And then this idea, so that two years later, you look at them and now they're working in their new job as a teacher and do they have alcohol use disorder? No, they don't. Three quarters of them, like not even close. So there's still a good share, a quarter of them who go on to continue to a, a destructive relationship with alcohol, but three quarters of them don't. Well, what, why? If they had a disease, that wouldn't happen, right? Oh, is that natural remission? Well, that's kind of a stretch. It's natural consequences. So I'm not getting rewarded for this now in my life where I moved away from college and I'm trying to get show up for work every day as a teacher and I'm nervous about that and I have new friends and they don't drink very much and so forth. So the natural consequences would be, I, I'm going to start to be late for work if I drank the way I drank in college, or I'm not going to be able to get my plans done together for my class today. So that's bad. That makes me feel bad. I don't want that to happen. So I'm not going to drink so much anymore. So that would be a natural consequence. I didn't do my treatment, my, my study plan for the class today because I drank too much last night. So I didn't have time to repair it. And. I felt really bad and the next day I felt embarrassed. The kids were like, what the heck? And that's a natural consequence. And that's, that is the most powerful shaper of people's behavior. The world giving them a lesson saying, yeah, that doesn't work. Can't do your lesson plan if you do that, I'm sorry. Can't show up for work three days late because we're gonna fire you. That's a natural consequence, you know? Nobody had to tell them that. That's just what happened in the world. So allowing natural consequences for people as a family member can be quite helpful instead of getting in the way of those natural consequences, because then it, it's not about me. It's not about, I'm just looking over your shoulder and trying to, you know, give you a hard time all the time. It's like, I, I don't, nothing to do with this. Like, this is your job saying stuff to you, not me. And that it's just a, it's just a way to stay connected and not be in that battle yourself, the person. And as I said, for people trying to make those changes themselves. It is the most natural form of change. I appreciate that. And I, I going back to the people who drink in college and then, you know, two thirds do not end up continuing to drink in that way. I also am reminded of, it was like a CDC study asking people who had substance use disorders if they are in recovery, whatever that yeah. means. And 75% yeah. said, yes, they were over it. And I don't think that is talked about enough that most people recover. Right. And, and that to me is just hopeful 
and truthful. So I appreciate that. Hopeful and truthful. Yes, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, I'm forgetting what NESARC stands for, national, I forget what, but anyway, national survey of lots of different behaviors and so forth, Mm -hmm. in which they find over and over again, every time they do that, people who qualified as heavy drinking, probably had alcohol use disorder. Next time you ask them, they don't. Didn't do anything specific, didn't go to treatment, nothing, just, and that would be, yeah, this doesn't work. This is not rewarding enough. Other things became more rewarding for me. And that's how change occurs. So that's in this invitation to change model, that's a lot of what we're trying to actually do is say, how do we invite this? How do we help the person evaluate this in ways that are meaningful to them instead of demanding change and insisting that their behavior is bad and they have to knock it off. That's not a helpful way to help people change. That's a way to get people, you know, back on their heels, pushing back, saying, leave me alone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you need to make being alcohol free more beneficial and pleasurable than drinking. And that's going to tip the scale. Right. Okay. How about, how about limit setting? Can you speak about that? As a family member type of thing? Both. I love how you're doing both examples. That's <laughs> really helpful. It's frying my brain though to try to do both examples. Um, Amazing. It is so helpful. Thank um, you. So from the, from the family's perspective, I think, and again, this is not about substance issues. So it, we're talking about substance issues right now, but this is about relationships. This is about change in general. So can I have an awareness of myself in this process? Cause I'm part of this change process. So I, I want to be here. I want to be useful. I want to encourage change because this is hard. What's, what's happening. It's hard for you. It's hard for us. And, and I'm going to be trying to pay attention to when you're making positive changes to notice that and to give you that and to acknowledge those things and certain things that happen like are cool. Don't are not okay for me. And when you yell at me or when you come home drunk and want to sit and have dinner with me, I, I don't want to do that. And can I start to, to be clear about those things that don't work for me? Because what often happens is I'm only clear in the way in a, okay, I've just blown my last gasket here. This is the third time this week that you came home drunk and wanted to have dinner and wanted to watch TV. And it's like, I don't freaking want to watch TV with you when you're drunk. It's like, it's no fun. So can I not take that moment on the third time when you're intoxicated to start yelling at you and storm out? Not as effective. <laughs> can I talk about it the next day when you're not intoxicated and say, you know what? I get, I get why you're drinking after you leave work. I understand you hang out with your guys and so forth. And you know, that's a, it's been a hard thing. We've talked about it and you know how I feel. I'd rather, I'd rather you weren't doing that, but I'm just trying to be helpful in helping you do that, make those changes. But as we go through this process, the drinking and having dinner thing, it's it just, it's too uncomfortable for me. So I'm not tell I'm not like demanding that you don't drink anymore. I'm just saying, I, I don't want to do that part anymore. But when you come home without drinking, I love having dinner. So I'd love to do that. So if that's what happens, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. But just so you know, ahead of time, if you're drinking, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to read on my own and do that. So that, that way we're not hammering the person. We're not dumping a load of judgment on them and shame and so forth. But we're also saying this, this, this is, this doesn't work. This is not sustainable for me. Makes me feel disrespected. 
makes me feel not collaborated with. And I, one of my values is respecting myself. And so I'm going to respect myself by not doing that with you, you know, and like, you know, that'd be one of a hundred thousand examples, but that, that's sort of the idea. This, this is the stuff that I'm happy to be there for. This is the stuff that I'm not going to do. That's a great example. And it, one of the questions I had for you was a lot of the people that I work with who have given up drinking or they are in the process of changing their drinking, they have a partner that still drinks. And this has become really difficult because their partner has been their drinking buddy and now they're doing something about their own drinking and then yeah. their partner is still drinking. And so yeah. this kind of relationship dynamic has been very difficult for a lot of people. That example you gave is is something I think would be useful. Can you think of other ways when, when you're the person changing your drinking and your other person's still drinking, other ways that we can help? Yeah. I mean, again, I think that the, the, the ideas and, and tools we've talked about are, are you're just sort of like taking those and reflecting them back, back in the other direction. Then again, you know, I can be coming from a place as the person who's making these changes and looking across the living room and seeing that you're not making those changes. I can come from a place of understanding what, what's important to you about doing that still. I can certainly understand what it's like to have somebody go after me and insist that I change. So I'm probably not going to do that because I know that doesn't work for me. And I may be setting limits and saying, but since I'm, I'm really working at this and it's really important to me, I don't want to hang around together when you're drinking because it's just really hard for me. It makes me want to fall back into that so quickly. So it, that's for me. Again, nothing to do with what you need to do or a demand on you. It's just important for me to protect myself in those ways, you know, so that the limit might come in there in that way. Might come in in the sense of, so now that I'm trying to do this thing and changing my relationship to alcohol and, and they are not really, can I use my self-awareness? Can I, and can I increase my self-compassion? So that in the awareness part of this invitation to change idea is, can I notice myself? We talked about noticing that it's painful to do this. So it's actually, it's painful for me. I don't want to leave my partner, but she's still drinking. That's painful for me. So I can acknowledge that to myself. And what would be a compassionate way for me to approach this for myself, for starters, and for them as well? Well, I, I need to actually not hang around in the evening with them when they're doing that. That's an act of self-compassion for me. I'm not going to storm out. I'm not going to tell them what a jackass they are. I just don't want to be around for that, you know? And, and I need to mind myself in this process because this is hard, you know? So I think all those elements, being able to understand where they're coming from, but also being able to include myself and, and show myself some compassion here. And then in the action part of this, of this invitation to change, we all maybe just noticing that I, I need to set some limits, you know? I, I love the quote that said, limit setting is, is a direct act of compassion towards yourself. Yeah, it is. It's really noticing where you're coming from and saying, I, I want to pay attention to that. I get to be mm -hmm. part of this equation. I get to matter here, you know? And I think some of what you were sharing about was that the the other side of the coin, you can, because there there can be a lot of anger and resentment towards your loved one. And there can be, like you said, you can find compassion and understanding. Yeah. It, is that kind of what you mean by looking at the two sides of the coin and being willing to relate to pain differently? Well, 
Well, let me actually, I'll say two things about that. When you were saying two sides of the coin, there, there is this coin metaphor that we use, but, but in a different way than that, okay. I do think that, that setting limits and so forth can be, can be the compassionate part, even though it looks like it might be a painful thing, but it's, but to the, I'm sorry, but, but to the, the coin part of what you're asking is specifically in this imitation change model, the, what we're talking about with that coin metaphor is if I'm going to notice myself, notice what I value, notice how I want to show up either as the person trying to help you or as the person trying to help myself, when I'm connected to stuff that matters to me a lot, I'm going to experience discomfort and pain. So sort of the idea that it's going to all be positive and we're going to get through this and, you know, let's look on the bright side. That's not actually how humans work really. It's sort of like love is the, the book's common example. To be in love means to be in pain. Not the romantic version of it, but it's true. You know, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be open. And then I'm going to get hurt sometimes. Not because they want to and not because they want to, whatever, because of my own history, I get hurt by things, you know, whatever the reasons are, if I'm going to be open and vulnerable and in love, I'm opening myself to being in pain also, and it's going to happen. If I'm going to really try hard to change my relationship to alcohol, because it really matters to me, because it's really hurting my family life and it really makes me feel bad about myself. And there's stuff about this that's just so painful. And I really want to put an effort into this. I'm not going to succeed sometimes. Like a, a, a version here, I, I, I run an inpatient facility and people come here and, you know, two weeks in, they might say, but I'm still having cravings. And I'm like, yeah, and what? Like, and you're going to walk out having cravings. You could be here for two weeks or six weeks or three months. This is not going to extract that from your brain. That's going to be a painful part of this process for you. So staying connected to wanting to change is going to keep you connected to the other parts that are still hard and still uncomfortable. And can we change our relationship to it and think of it as a coin? So that's the metaphor there is you can't really take one side of a coin. It has two sides. You can't erase the, the hard parts on the other side. It comes with the, with the territory helping somebody in this kind of a struggle. I'm pouring myself. I want to stay connected to my wife who's struggling to do these, make these changes. And it's so heartbreaking sometimes when she can't, or it makes me mad, or I'm so, I feel betrayed or that disappointed. Okay. So I can put down the coin. I can say, I'm not going to help you anymore. You need to go to rehab or, you know, I'm, you're, I'm out of there. And what I'm losing is the parts that I value, which is I love my wife and I want to stay connected. And I wanted her to feel supported. And that matters a lot to me. So I can put that coin down and say, the hell with it. I'm not going to deal with this pain anymore. It says, you got drunk again. Okay. I get to do that, but I'm going to lose another part of the other side of the coin there. And if I want to stay helpful and I want to stay connected and be there for that person, because that matters to me, I'm going to experience pain sometimes. It's not going to go well sometimes. I'm going to be disappointed. Okay. Can I allow for that also and stay, still stay there, still stay connected? So that's I, the I, kind of the coin idea. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that this concept has been really life-changing for me. And that's that whole kind of life is 50-50, right? Sometimes it's mm -hmm. awful and sometimes it's awesome. And 
and you can't you only you can't like dim the dark parts to only have light there's just this contrast between day and night right but that is just And learning to accept that, also having been a drinker where I was just, I had a quick release for pain. That was my escape valve. And so when you don't have that release anymore, yeah. you you do experience pain and yeah. and it goes away, right. but it is part of what makes life life. Right. But that's such a great way to put it. Exactly. As the person you're saying yourself in that case, who's attempting to make this change, what is what is the painful hard part of this? It might include, I don't have my way of dis, of of getting rid of discomfort anymore. If I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to be able to have that way to get rid of it anymore. I maybe I, over time I can find out other ways. Now I do yoga. Now I do blah, 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 whatever. Now I do therapy. Now I talk to my friends. Okay, but it doesn't work the same way, and I don't know how to do that at first, and I'm going to be uncomfortable making this change. So. On the value side of this coin is it feels important to me to make this change for whatever reasons and got to be uncomfortable. It is not, it can't possibly happen without discomfort, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Embrace the suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Well, let me see. Well, when do you, as a family member or someone who is caring for a loved one, is there a point where you are done with that relationship and how do you know? Well, so that, that would be, uh, again, as a family member, the encouragement is part of the model so that there's these three sections. There's helping with understanding by trying to let yourself understand them. There's helping with awareness. So that's understanding myself and letting myself be part of this equation. And then just helping with action. That's like communication and watering the garden and reinforcement. But in the awareness part includes what's this like for me? How does my body feel every day? What are my thoughts and emotions? What are my values? Am I being able to live with them and allow for them? And I may come to a place where in this relationship, I, this is too painful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that, that's part of the equation. I get to allow that information as part of my decision-making, you know, this isn't like a selfless act and I'll go till my grave until I help you change. Like that's not, that's not a reasonable expectation. And at some point I may step away or I may step away today, or I may step away this month. Sometimes people say, well, I kicked my kid out of the house and I'll forget for forever regret it. And that's not part of this model, this invitation to change. Right. And my response to that is it can be, you know, the, the tough love, the generic knee jerk response of kick them out. Let them hit rock bottom. They got to find they can't do it. Nothing will change until they want to change. All that crap that's not actually helpful. Part of what's not helpful is it's one size fits all. I may get to a place where in natural limit setting and so forth, it just doesn't work. I have someone in in, in a group of mine a while ago who said, I'm in recovery. I was using substances for, you know, 40 years myself, and I've been in recovery for a long time. I have PTSD and my kid coming home and bringing drug dealers in the house and chaos is worth like it's, I've realized it's, it's kicking up my PTSD, but, and at first they were like, but I got to hang in there with them. I know I got to be kind. I got, I'm like, wait a second. So you're paying a price that's probably too high for you and you need and get to set a limit. 
because you're part of, this is a two-way thing here. So for you to say, I love you, this can't happen anymore. If it does, you have to not live here. Not generically, you're, you're out, you hit rock bottom, deal with it. But in these circumstances, I can't do it. I have to take care of myself as well as you. And I can't do that. So whether that means ending this relationship, having you move out, ending this relationship for now, no reason it needs to be black and white, you know, if you can come back to this relationship in a different way, here's what I need to have be different. I'd love to have it be different, you know, and let's try some more and I'm willing to try again in a month, but here's what I need to see for me. <laughs> you don't have to do it. I'm just telling you what I need, you know, and what I, what limits I have around this. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share that we haven't talked about yet? You know, I just think that the thinking of being able to think about this change process in these ways is just much more hopeful for people, whether it's the person who's trying to make the change themselves so that I'm not just jammed in a corner of stigma and blame and shame. Like, I don't want to live this way. I get something out of my substances and that's hard to let go of. And I'm not a crazy person. I'm not an evil person. I'm, I'm somebody who's getting something out of this behavior and I'd probably like to change it some, and I'd be certainly be willing to consider that. And if you're approaching me by, in a way that's understanding of that and is encouraging of that change, that's really appreciated, you know, and for family members, they love their family member. <laughs> they, they want to stay connected and all this stuff about detaching and letting them hit rock bottom and stuff is just so brutal for families. You know, they don't want to go there. They regret it years later, having been directed there. They, they don't know what else to do because there's not a blaming thing there. It's just like, that's what they're told by the culture. And it's really grievous for people to be told that kind of stuff. And then they act on it and then things go badly and everybody feels horrible and betrayed. And, you know, it's like, it's, so this, I think this invitation to change approach is just a respectful, collaborative and effective way that allows people to stay in connection with each other, you know, while these changes are happening. So, and, and to say to people, and no one ever taught you this, you know, there's no reason you would know that this would be a useful way to go about this. And they'll never see it in a movie because it's not sexy. You know, this is the, this is the creating conditions for change model, not the, how did I bust his jobs and make him change? And it was real dramatic. And off we went, you know, the top of the steps in Rocky, like that's not what this change process is like. Slower, more incremental. There's, there's going backwards and forwards and it takes patience and compassion, you know? Well, a tremendous amount of gratitude for you and your colleagues. I cannot recommend these books highly enough. So there's the workbook called the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends. And then if you want to take an even deeper dive, there's the Beyond Addiction book, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. I will put links in the show notes. Are there any other ways to find you, Dr. Foote? Our foundation is that supports a lot of this work. We train people all over the country virtually now. Family members, we do trainings for. Professionals, we do trainings for. We have a training coming up in May of this year for professionals and family members, actually. So that's our at our website. 
cmcffc.org. You can get resources, you can see videos, training materials, and also the, the links for, for trainings that are coming up. So those, I think they're just really helpful materials for people. I agree. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time today to have this conversation. I think it's really going to help a lot of people. So thank, thank you, you very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. Please share and review the show so you can help other people too. I want you to know I'm always here for you. So please reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com for free resources and help. No matter where you are on your drinking journey, I want to encourage you to just keep practicing, keep going. I promise you are not alone and you are worth it. Every day you practice not drinking is a day you can learn from. I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, talk to you next time.